This evening, I'd like to reflect a little bit more upon the themes that I touched upon the other evening of sacred hunger to perhaps look a little more deeply at the yearnings that arise in us for both authenticity and intimacy, two yearnings which at times can seem to be very unrelated. To reflect first of all upon authenticity, what it might mean for you to be authentic or or what you sense authenticity is in another. I think probably for most of us, authenticity does mean to be truthful and genuine. That authenticity is about honesty, about being uncontrived or undisguised. That authenticity perhaps also means for us something or someone that is trustworthy that is real and reliable. Intimacy speaks to us about closeness and communion. And for us, intimacy is about the abandonment of separation and barriers and division. And I feel both authenticity and intimacy both speak to us about a way of being free, uncontained, undivided. They speak to us about a way of understanding what is true and living and embodying that truth in all moments, in our lives, and in all things. Both are longing for authenticity and intimacy are longings that are very profound for us in our lives. Profound enough that they are the beginnings of many of the searches that we make, many of the journeys that we make are intended to discover a greater authenticity or a greater intimacy. Now the search for these is a search that can be deeply liberating if that search is undertaken with care and with wisdom. It can help us to understand how to live in a more sacred, a more free way. The search for authenticity and for intimacy are also searches that can be deeply dangerous for us if they are undertaken with fear or with confusion, leading not to liberation, but leading us to feel more imprisoned or to feel more fear, more conflict, more separation, more division, because we begin to look everywhere but within ourselves, or or because our longings for intimacy and authenticity simply become restless appetites that can never be filled. I'd like to read you a, a short story. There was a group of young nuns who were debating the best way to gain entrance to heaven. One said that the most direct way was to gain the humility of St. Catherine. Another disagreed and said the most assured way of gaining entrance to heaven was to emulate the humility of St. Mary. Yet another put forth the opinion that the gates of heaven would open if they were to follow the compassionate example of St. Jude. Taking their debate to their mother superior, they laid before her their opinions on how to make the gates of heaven open. The mother superior said to them, 
These are indeed our wonderful ways to live, and I cannot say which is better than the other. Disappointed, the young nuns asked her, Will you then tell us which way you are following to paradise? The elderly nun answered, I don't know of any way that will guarantee the gates of heaven will open for me. I only hope that the day I meet St. Peter, I will be able to look him in the eye and say that I have done my best to be myself. Now, this is a curious phrase I think we use in our world. Just be yourself. Just be yourself. You know, just relax and be yourself. Just be, just be confident and be yourself. It's a phrase we've heard many times. Sometimes it's being prescribed for us by others. You know, in times in our lives when maybe we've been confused or anxious or, or unsure of, of how to act or where to go next. Sometimes maybe when we felt kind of lost or swayed too much by the opinions or expectations of others, some wise person will come along to us and say, just be yourself. I have a, a teenage daughter, and there seems to be a kind of unwritten code amongst that age group that it, the best way to be in the world is essentially to be a carbon copy of all of your friends. <laughs> where you wear the same clothes and you wear your hair the same way and you hold the same views and opinions and you have very strongly written uh, prescriptions about what is cool and what is sad and everything is very defined and sometimes I, I find myself very feeling very frustrated with my daughter and I say to her, you know, sir, can't you just be yourself? <laughs> you know, can't you just think for yourself? Can't you just sense what is right for you? Just be yourself. Uh, needless to say, this is an entirely unsuccessful and <laughs> unappreciated piece of advice. Equally, I think at times we, we use, it, use this phrase to ourselves. You know, it sounds great. Be yourself. And we sometimes want to offer that advice to ourselves. You know, sometimes we put it in different words and say, you know, well, I just want to follow my heart. Except it keeps changing directions. <laughs> You know, and we're not always sure what it means. It's a phrase we want to use, and yet we feel uncertain at times what it means. It's a phrase we might want to evoke in those times, actually, when we feel we do surrender somehow a quality of truth or honesty. We, we feel we want to come closer to what is true for ourselves. There may be moments in our lives when we have been gripped by anger or by jealousy or greed, and we find coming from within us a word or an action or a gesture which wounds ourselves or wounds another person. And in the moment of doing it, or some moments later, we can feel enormous regret and sadness. And there's a part of us that wants to say, you know, this is not who, that was not who I am. That was not who I am. That was not me. That was not myself. There may be moments in our lives when we do feel ourselves departing from that which is true within ourselves. Perhaps moments when we, we follow a pathway of pleasing rather than challenging, or a pathway of submitting rather than being steady. There may be moments in our meditation in our lives when we find ourselves choosing the option of yielding rather than persevering. 
or persevering rather than yielding. There may be times in our lives when we find ourselves saying yes when everything within us is shouting to say no. Or moments, perhaps, when we have ignored opportunities for freedom or for compassion, being tempted by pleasure or by indifference or by avoidance. There may have been moments in our lives when we find ourselves refusing to let go of something that we know actually to be limiting and confining and we feel uneasy in those moments. Somewhere, intuitively, I feel we feel uneasy when we separate ourselves from what we sense to be true. That in that departure, the uneasiness comes, I think, from feeling that we are sacrificing a quality of being or a quality of truth which is essential to us, which is essential to a life of freedom and integrity. Those moments of departing from what we sense or understand to be true become very obvious moments to us because they are moments that leave behind them many residues. They leave behind them many traces. Sometimes the residues take the form of feeling a kind of lingering regret or grief or unease. Moments of departing from what we sense to be true or valuable also leave behind them many, many thoughts. That is one of the residues that there are many, many thoughts left behind them. And the thoughts are often taking the form of, I wish, or if only, if only is a big one, or I should have, or the kind of thoughts that are left behind when we live in a way which is a little bit departed from what we sense to be true, take the form of fantasy. Fantasy is the refuge we may seek for when we feel exiled from what is authentic within ourselves. <clears throat> Iris Murdoch once said that the freedom from fantasy is the beginning of human liberation. And I think this is really remarkable. To not to have to live in a way any longer which features the words, I wish, or if only, or I should have. You can imagine. To live in a way which we feel is authentic, which we feel is truthful, that is in harmony with what we deeply understand to be true and valuable, is a way of life that nourishes us and enriches us. When our words and our actions and our choices and our gestures do come from that sense of authenticity and honesty and integrity, then they don't leave behind them any trace or any residue of regret or fantasy. They don't leave behind them thoughts of pride or sorrow. Living in an authentic way is a great challenge for us. And it means by, I feel, understanding of the absolute necessity of treasuring a harmony between our inner and outer worlds. If there is no harmony between our inner and outer worlds, we have much sorrow and fragmentation, and we have a lot of conflict. There needs to be a harmony between our actions and wisdom, a harmony between our understanding and speech, 
a harmony between our intuition and the choices that we make. When this harmony is there, when there is an integration, a communion between our inner world and our outer world, then really all of our lives become a vehicle of communication because our lives become both a pathway and our lives become the place in which we communicate what we understand to be true and authentic. When that harmony, that integration or communion is missing, we by necessity become fragmented and begin to live in a way in which we feel actually divorced from ourselves. When we are exiled from ourselves, those are the times that our lives actually begin to be in service of seeking something other, something apart, a substitute for being at home with ourselves. And the substitute for being at home with ourselves tends to take the form of the restlessness of the appetites of discontent that I was speaking about previously. Now, it is helpful to question, what is the demon? What is the demon that exiles us from authenticity? And most often, that demon is the demon of fear. The demon of fear, the phenomena, the experience, the quality of fear becomes the hunger for approval, for acceptance and affirmation. Because if I don't know who I am, then the only way that I can be at ease is to have someone else tell me who I am. We see approval, acceptance, and affirmation as quality, as rewards. Rewards. They become rewards that we will be given or rewards that we will gain from conforming to, from pleasing, from meeting the unquenchable expectations and needs and demands often of others. Out of fear, there is born a very deep self-consciousness in our lives. Self-consciousness about our bodies, about our thoughts, about who we are, about our appearance, about our personalities. And the feeling of self-consciousness is the feeling of always being watched and judged. Living in a self-conscious way, we do forget that the most critical and vigilant watcher we actually carry within ourselves When we are self-conscious in our lives, not at ease, not at ease in our own being, we just try too hard. We try too hard. All of life becomes trying. All of life becomes a kind of heroic struggle, a kind of heroic effort. Heroic effort to be good enough, to be right, to be spiritual enough, to be acceptable enough, to be attractive enough. And of course, where do our guidelines come from? You know, when we're trying really hard, where do we get the clues? We get the clues from models. We get the clues from images. Models become very important to us because they show us what right looks like. They show us what good enough looks like. And yet, when we're self-conscious and trying so hard, good enough always seems to be the territory of somebody else. And within our own being, within our own hearts and psyche, we find ourselves endlessly watching ourselves for mistakes or for doing something wrong. And then it's no wonder we're so grateful when the rewards come and praise and acceptance and approval because it's just a little bit of relief or reassurance that we must be doing at least something right. We can come to crave 
the praise and the acceptance and the approval as if we can build an authentic life upon such fragile foundations. Like to imagine we were writing a book here or we were putting a book together here and we were going to put together the book of the ideal self and we were all going to contribute to it. We are all going to contribute our idea, our image of what the ideal self would look like. Do you know what your contribution would be? You know, for one person, their contribution might be, you know, the, the attractive, beautiful, composed self. You know, another person would contribute the maybe the earth mother self, you know, endlessly nurturing and, and generous. Another person might contribute, you know, the powerful self, you know, with the right clothes and the right identity. You know, another person might contribute the spiritual self. We all carry within us different images and different ideas and often different agendas about the ideal self. One thing that maybe all of these different images would have in common is that this ideal self would be a self that never makes mistakes, that is never scolded, never blamed, and never judged. I think one thing that is sure in the world of self, when we feel confused or lost or fearful, we are most often guided to adopt pathways and choices and identities that seem the safest for us, that seem to threaten us with the least amount of danger and offer us the highest degree of prote protection. Guided by fear in our lives, we can make many choices that actually diminish ourselves, sacrificing what is possible for us, sacrificing the possibility of discovering what is most true and free within ourselves. And actually, there is no, I feel no greater betrayal of our own being than to turn away from that which is possible. Hear the voice of intuition within ourselves. I feel knows that we need to put an end to living a life of fear, governed by fear, and a life of homelessness. And yet it is a great challenge to live in an authentic way, to even begin to understand what it means to live in an authentic way. Sometimes it seems like it's going to be really painful to lead an authentic existence because it does mean, often it does mean, learning to get by without the rewards of approval or affirmation or applause. Our intuition, our own, I think, deep well of wisdom that brings us here, we know, know that within ourselves we do hold the seeds of very profound wisdom, of deep compassion, of a great freedom. And yet often there is a struggle between our intuition and wisdom and the habits of a lifetime that we don't so easily shed. Sometimes in meditation, when we get a little confused, we even imagine that here, through meditation, I'm actually going to find the real me. This is sometimes a hope, you know, that I'm going to unravel all of these layers or peel away all of these layers of what's not me or what doesn't feel authentic. And then hopefully one day 
I'm going to get to the central core and say, this is the real me. Bad news, I'm afraid. <laughs> Bad news. <clears throat> but our search for the real me, or even our search in meditation, when it's not for the real me, even if it's for the real not me, <laughs> can be colored by the same self-consciousness that has guided many of the other pathways we've chosen in our lives. It is not unusual on retreat to feel that everybody else is doing it better than me. Remember, you know, everybody else seems to know the right way to sit, the right way to walk. You know, we find ourselves looking out of the corner of our eye, you know, to discover the secret of the right walking style, you know, or the right sitting posture, or even the right clothes to wear. <laughs> Once I spoke to someone, you know, on retreat, you know, just came so distressed because everything seemed to be going wrong, you know, just, just couldn't seem to get it, you know, get how to do it, you know, no matter how much she tried, it still seemed to go wrong. You know, in the end she said, you know, and I'm not even wearing the right clothes. <laughs> you know, it's my first retreat and I came here dressed comfortably, you know, in my polyester tracksuit and then I look around and there's all these Indian flowing cottons and shawls and all of these nice skirts and things. And how am I going to get enlightened in a polyester tracksuit? You know, it's the same, that same feeling of just being so wrong, you know, like, I just can't get it, you know. That sitting I missed, they gave that essential piece of information. <laughs> and I missed it. I know I missed it because everybody else got it, you know. We see that self-consciousness, you know, about how to do it right and the ever-vigilant um, watcher that seems to accompany us on our path, that inevitable self-consciousness. It's always got a few words to say, you know, about not being quite good enough, about the ways that we've blown it, the things that we've done wrong to do today. And we meet it so often again and again and again, you know, and we can feel so devastated, you know. We go to a group interview, you know, and, you know, we want to be the eager beaver student, you know. So we're the first one with the question about, you know, some grand question about the cosmology of the universe and the relationship of Buddhism to Christianity. And, you know, we think we've got a really good question there, you know. And, you know, somebody says, well, you know, it really doesn't matter, you know. <laughs> so it's really not important, you know. And... We feel so, oh, you know, again, just one more time in my life, I've tried too hard. I just tried too hard. Amidst all of this confusion, mind you, we somehow remind ourselves, we do somehow remind ourselves that our pathway is actually not intended to duplicate the pathway of anyone else. Our experience is not intended to be the same as the experience of another, and that our journey will probably never be entirely a copy of the journey of another. And there is something that is very unique and to be honored within that. We somehow remind ourselves amidst our confusion that our pathway is to be learned, is to learn to be still. To learn to be still amidst movement, to learn to be still amidst all of this confusion and all of this chaos, and to listen well. Not to draw conclusions from what we're experiencing, not to try and make a story out of it, not to try and make sense of what we're experiencing, but simply to await with an alert vigilance 
the unfoldment of our path, the unfoldment of our own being. As long as we get stuck in or fascinated or preoccupied with any of the details of that unfoldment, then we will lose our way. As long as we get stuck in or fascinated with any conclusion about that unfoldment, then we deny the unfoldment. There are many revelations that begin to emerge as we are still. And initially, many of those revelations, quite naturally, are are concerned with ourselves. You know, we're not that concerned with what anybody else is thinking or feeling or their knees or their back. Initially, mostly our revelations are about I. We see the ways in which thoughts and memories and feelings and images and pain is stirred to the surface through stillness. It's a remarkable process. To be still is an enormous amount that happens enormous amount that happens in stillness. We see, begin to sense also many of the patterns, many of the patterns of conditioning, the grooves of conditioning of our being. The patterns, the pathways that we have followed countless times in our lives, the pathways that we see arising here that we are tempted to follow again. We also see how often much of this thing, many of the things that are stirred, the feelings and thoughts and images and patterns, are quickly followed by the thought, I am. The great temptation of the world of conclusions. We say, I am greedy. I am angry. I am jealous or I am fearful. The list is often so endless. We are concerned here in this practice with examining the sense of I am and not the description, but just that sense of I am. Never mind the description. It will change endlessly millions of times in our lives, thousands of times in a single day, to stay with the sense of I am and not the words about it. Because the moment that we get stuck or preoccupied with the descriptions of what I am, that's when we get busy. That's when we get busy. We, we, we have a lot of things to do then. You know, if I am this, then I've got to get rid of it or fix it or alter it or modify it or have less of it or have more of it or make it more perfect or whatever. But surely we have to do something with it. This is when, in this busyness around the descriptions, this is when we begin to wander in one inauthentic existence after another. This is when we have departed from that which is true. It is important for us to remember that in this practice, we are not here really to discover the real me, whether it's the positive me that is pleasing or whether it is a negative me that needs working on or altering or changing. Our point in this practice, or one of the points in this practice, is certainly to see what I am not. What I am not. To question the truth of those descriptions. Now, I would suggest that you try and find a self that's lasted all of today. Just a self that has lasted all of today or since the beginning of the retreat. 
find oneself that's being consistent. You know, always there, never absent, never missing. The angry self, the confused self, the judgmental self, the greedy self. Find one that is lasting and eternal. It's quite difficult to do because we see the very nature of our sense of self is to pick up the flavor and the color of whatever we identify with in any moment. That is the nature of the self that we experience in that moment. What we experience in the world of self is a passing show. This passing show we are asked to embrace with awareness, to embrace with awareness, not with identification, to see its transparency. Now, what is the nature of something that is true, of something that is genuine and unshakable? It is not constantly changing and subject to alteration dependent upon identification. You know, what is the nature of something that is genuine and authentic? It is not something that is shoved and altered and molded by whatever is most powerful, making the most powerful impression in the moment. That is not the nature of something that is genuine. The nature of something that is authentic is that it is unshakable, it is free from doubt, it is essential, not conditioned by the changing show of impressions. To see this passing show, to understand it, to be liberated from it, to know what is true and authentic, we are asked to find a profound and deep willingness to listen well to let all things be within this passing show, to be present within them, to see that this passing show of descriptions and labors is not an invitation to missions and to modifications and busyness. It is an invitation to dive beneath the words, to dive beneath the concepts, to dive beneath the descriptions in order to understand and to know what is true and genuine and authentic, to dive beneath the conclusions, to see what is unborn, what is unconditioned, what is without falsehood. Awareness is a doorway. Awareness is a doorway for diving beneath the world of appearances. To understand what is true, we need to be intimate. We need to be intimate with ourselves. We need to be intimate and close to this moment. We need to be intimately present with our own challenges and struggles. Intimacy is an art that sometimes we need to relearn. I think as women, we know and trust our capacity for intimacy, for nearness, for openness. It is equally true that our capacity for intimacy can be confused and entwined with fear and with the power of our conditioning. I think in our hearts and our experience, we do know deeply the power of intimacy. Out of our capacity to dive, to dive beneath appearances and images and divisions is born the capacity to accept, to love, to forgive, to heal. Intimacy is the watershed of generosity, of compassion, and intimacy is perhaps the only basis of a truly ethical and dignified life that is unburdened by demand and by self-interest. Through our capacity for intimacy, we do really understand what it means to live in a sacred way. 
we see through intimacy that all of life is woven together, interconnected. That within all of life there is an organic kinship. That all of life manifests in different forms, wearing different faces, appearing in different bodies. All of nature does this. We are somewhat alone and unique in our manifestation just as all of life's forms finds its unique manifestation. And yet we are kindred. We cannot be separated from one another. We cannot be divorced from one another. We cannot truly be divided from one another. We inform each other with our every thought, our every word, our every feeling. When we look in the face of a single person here, you can see in their face the generations of people who have gone before them. You can see the ways in which they have been nurtured by life, the ways in which they affect the world around them. When we look in our own face, we see reflected the joys and sorrows, the fears and possibilities the yearnings and the terrors of all of life. Every single breath that we take is informed by the trees that stand around us. We are a presence in the presence of life. There is an undeniable intimacy just in being. Sometimes we forget this. I think as women, we are often raised on the myth of feminine frailty. And raised on the myth of frailty, we can forget about our intrinsic intimacy. The intrinsic intimacy that surrounds and holds us. When we are raised on the myth of feminine frailty, the path of intimacy somehow becomes very limited and restricted. It becomes a very narrow path. We believe we are separate, but even more with our mythology, we believe we are weak in that separateness. We even begin to equate aloneness with separateness. And then aloneness becomes a problem to overcome, or a weakness to surmount. And how do we do this? We believe that we will find communion or find intimacy only through giving up separation, sometimes through submerging ourselves in someone or something else. This is a very limited perception of intimacy, and it's one that's totally dangerous for us evoking more self-consciousness, more hunger, more need, more dependency. Hungers that can become so desperate that we want to find intimacy at any price, even if it means abandoning ourselves. And we, know, we feel we know when we've discovered intimacy because, again, we start looking for the rewards and the proof of approval and acceptance and affirmation. These we get tempted to call intimacy. When our yearning for intimacy is reduced to a hunger, it becomes a desire for protection from fear and from aloneness. And yet intimacy then, perceived in this way, always seems to rely upon proof, upon evidence. We have to be, someone has to prove to us, offer us evidence, that we are loved, that we are worthy, that we are accepted. We become very powerless in this transaction. Authenticity is something that is difficult to find if we are always trying to find the perfect self. You cannot be whole if you are perfect. Because to be perfect then means denying everything that you deem to be imperfect within yourself. You can never be whole. You can never be perfect 
if you're going to be whole. This is a great basis for living your life on. Finding the perfect self can bring acceptance and approval, but it cannot bring that sense of ease, of authenticity. Intimacy is difficult to find if we live with fear, because living with fear means always relying upon proof and evidence. Authenticity is actually a way of being truthful to ourselves and truthful in our lives, honoring what we understand to be true without being opinionated, without having positions, but constantly seeking to understand what is true and what is free. In that way, we begin to discover a life that is authentic, a sense of being that is authentic. Intimacy is not some distant destination. Intimacy is all around us, within us. To be still, to be open, is to be touched, is to be able to touch every moment. The power of awareness is that it illuminates all things. Our path in meditation is actually just to seek that illumination because this is the way that we find ourselves at home. This is the way that we begin to understand what it means to be free. I'd like to end with a story. About, it's a story of a woman who was on a hiking trip in Alaska and she became separated from her friends. I don't know how it happened, she recounted. One minute I was following the footprints and the sounds of the person in front of me, and the next minute it seemed they were gone. Maybe I was daydreaming. Maybe I was thinking of the meal we would prepare when we stopped. All I knew was I was alone. At first I didn't worry. I was sure they would come back to look for me at any moment. Then everything became strange. I realized I had no idea of how much time had passed since we had separated. It could have been minutes, it could have been hours. The woods seemed to be filled with noises. None of them were friendly. The undergrowth seemed filled with menace. Then these sounds were drowned out by another. I realized it was the pounding of my heart and the sound of my own blood raging through my body. I was sure I was going to die as I sank deeper and deeper into my own panic and terror. I curled up on the forest floor with my arms wrapped around me, lost in the horror of my own darkness. All I began to think about the darkness of my life, the marriage I was fleeing from, my failures, the people I'd hurt, the thoughts of my inadequacy. It all seemed endless. It seemed like hours that I lay there and wailed and cried, like a baby who lost her mother. My aloneness was like a black and bottomless pool. I was its victim and its creator. I sobbed and moaned and screamed out my hopelessness and terror. I cried out for help and knew it would never come. At last exhausted, the tears and the sobs ended, and as I lifted my head, I realized that the light had changed and a breeze had sprung up. Gradually, I felt it cool my face, and I began to look around me. The stillness of the forest was still there. It seemed eternal. As I rubbed my swollen eyes, I saw the ways that the sun was reflecting off the greenery and the swaying of the branches in the breeze. Silently, hardly moving the branches, she came. A young deer stepped out onto the path in front of me a path that hadn't even been visible to me when I had cast wildly about in my terror. She seemed born of the woods and stood there lifting her nose to smell the breeze. She was so at home, so complete, so at one with the forest. I was entranced and watched her with a dreamlike calm as the doe stepped carefully through the undergrowth. She was alert to danger, constantly raising her head to sniff the air, but totally composed. 
it came to me that the difference between me and the deer was that fear for the deer was an ally, alerting her to danger, connecting her with her world. For me, fear was an enemy, driving me out of myself and out of my world. I got to my feet and slowly followed her. The path that was there for her was also there for me. After a time, the doe, sensing something imperceptible to me, ran off into the woods. I watched her go, filled with gratitude. Keeping my eyes on the path, I was filled with a certainty that it would lead me to safety. To stay with the path that at times was covered with creeping undergrowth, I needed to be so totally awake that I lost all consciousness of time. My body seemed to lose its boundaries. The branches grazed my face and the sun touched me. A deep peace filled me. I felt I was the forest and the forest was me. It came as a surprise to me when I realized I could smell wood smoke and hear voices in the distance. When I stepped into the clearing where my friends had made camp, they came running with relief and concern etched on their faces. I never could explain to them the journey I had made in being lost. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.